0: Welcome back to A Pot Upon a Hill. I'm Mr. Copeland.
1: And I'm Mr. Vosliadis. We
0: are finishing up the 8-4 notes for you right now, picking up where we left off with Gerald Ford in the White House, and we're going to take you all the way to the year of 1980.
1: Now, Gerald Ford, as you remember, he was appointed by Nixon as kind of like an emergency uh, pick for the VP. Spiro Agnew was under allegations of misappropriating funds while he was governor of Maryland. And Ford was just kind of like an easy, safe bet. But now that Nixon has resigned, Ford has inherited the presidency. Um, And besides parting Nixon, he's going to start to do a few other things um, in which he's not going to really be very uh, well looked upon received, by the yeah. general, well received by the general public. One is um, he, the agency of the CIA. Now, that the CIA during the time, I'd say about from the 1950s by Eisenhower, it's going to begin to kind of do a lot of covert operation. At its zenith by 1970s, the CIA is really going to embrace this covert cloak and dagger operations where it's going to face some scrutiny. Um, especially after Watergate, because if the president is now utilizing, you know, agencies to obstruct justice, maybe there's other agencies or people within those agencies that are doing worse things. Well there
0: was some evidence and accusations that the president pressured the CIA to and I think we mentioned in the last podcast was that he pressured the CIA to lean on the FBI to get them away from the scent of his uh, you know, creep, the organization that was doing the dirty t- tactics for him. So the investigating the CIA became a movement to we've got the corruption out of the White House, out of the Oval Office. We've taken care of them, uh, even though Ford pardons them. It's now an address of serious look at, the CIA was created for intelligence gathering, combating the Soviet Union during the Cold War, but we have to make sure that what they don't become known for in the future, and they are only about, are these uh, opportunities, these covert operations, where you're overthrowing governments. Uh, And one of the things that uh, comes up is the fact that Salvador Allende, is the marxist president of chile that we decide to remove and this is where there's some um, controversy surrounding that with the cia
1: Right. And and like this, these rumors of, uh, you know, CIA orchestrating like assassinations starts to kind of become very upsetting to to the public. So, you know, Ford will go ahead and try to clean up the reputation of CIA by appointing George H.W. Bush um, to to be the director. And this is kind of what kind of promulgates and springboards Bush's career. And we will later talk about his uh, ascendancy into the presidency himself by the 1980s. Um, Another thing that Ford is going to be uh, known or associated with is the failure of U.S. foreign policy in Southeast Asia, most notably in Vietnam. As you recall, uh, Nixon desperately tried to uh, launch his Vietnamization, a slow withdrawal while arming to the teeth South Vietnamese forces so we can make sure, kind of like what we did in Korea, we make sure we have South Vietnam and a North Vietnam He got into trouble doing his uh, bombing raids in Cambodia. He eventually agreed upon an armistice. However, Ford is unable to secure enough funds to continue the process of Vietnamization.
0: Yeah, part of the problem is the political realities in 1974. This is when we're dealing with the Watergate scandal. The um, House of Representatives is making the effort to impeach the president and investigating Watergate. So they're not interested in providing funds to the government immediately following this shakeup. So um, the congressional funds that are absent from this really leave the South Vietnamese forces vulnerable to this aggressive attack from uh, the communists of the North. And this is what leads to eventually the fall of Saigon in April, 1975. So Vietnam is united under the communist rule in Hanoi and the United States basically is left holding the bag and unfortunately trying to get out as many people as possible at the very end. There's images of people um, dangling from helicopters as they right. leave from the uh, from South Vietnam from Saigon, um, and it's really painful to watch because many of these people know that they're going to be under communist control going forward as the United States is leaving.
1: And the fact that we have a very rushed evacuation procedure of about 150,000 Vietnamese um, kind of looks bad against, especially when it's televised, right? It just it just underscores more that we're retreating and making yeah. a hasty.
0: These retreat. people thought that we were. There to support them for the long haul. And then right. when everything hit the fan, we were getting out and we were not going to spend too much time waiting for them to come with us.
1: Like in Vietnam, it doesn't take long for communist forces in the neighboring nation of Cambodia to also start to re-entrench communist ideology. And the uh, administration in 1975, known as the uh, Khmer Rogue, how do you pronounce that? Khmer Rouge. Khmer Rouge, thank you. <laughs> uh, uh, begins to take over Cambodia, and he's going to purge Western ideology, or what he perceives Western ideology, by killing his own people, about a million or so, uh, in in a very infamous relocation program, something that rivals that of the Nazis and in the Japanese during World War II. Now,
0: so when you look forward, the future of Southeast Asia, that fear of the communism uh, and the domino theory that influenced so much of our foreign policy, uh, surrounding the issues of containment during the Cold War, that fear was never really realized. Um, Singapore, Thailand, Malaysia specifically, were, they were referred to as little tigers because they were able to resist communism and their countries never fell.
1: And I guess you could make this argument, some critics have, it's a weak one, might I add personally, uh, that thank God we were in Vietnam because it bought those nations enough time to develop robust economic capitalistic systems to make it less susceptible to communist infiltration. I just think that's a really very weak, flimsy argument considering 58,000 Americans yeah, dying and, and the amount of inflation that occurred as a result of the $118 billion we spent on the war. But I leave that to you to decide. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
0: I mean, I don't think anybody was saying that was the reason why it was worth it, but if they were going to throw us those crumbs, saying, oh, well, right. we, we accomplished All right. that at All least, right. and I don't know how many people are enthusiastic. Face. Way yes. to save
1: face. Definitely. Um, so in terms of his domestic policy, um, again, he's not going to be a very oh, long, he doesn't have a long tenure, but he's going to be known to be less accommodating and more conservative than Nixon. He's going to urge voluntary self-regulation from businessmen and consumers.
0: Yeah, I mean, for all the criticism that um, historians have of, of Nixon, he actually worked with his Democratic-controlled Congress fairly right. well. And there were, we talked about those programs before. So it's a move towards more conservative ideology. The economy is working towards a recession, unemployment moving up to almost 9% during Ford's short tenure. But he actually agrees... To a democratic-led bill to try and stimulate the economy, but overall, 39 different bills that were passed by the Democratic Congress, he vetoes in his just little under two years in office.
1: So less of a pragmatic, uh, you know, leader as his predecessor, Ford is going to kind of like, you know, stay along that old traditional, you know, 1920s-esque staunch conservative, like laissez-faire, mm-hmm. hands-off government, and it's going to kind of cost him, as we will know in the 1976 election. The Bicentennial Celebration um, in 1976, it's America's 200th b- birthday. It's just an opportunity for Americans to kind of reorient themselves to who we are. Um, however, I must tell you that the ghosts of Vietnam War Kate will still haunt us uh, well into the 21st century.
0: It's a significant accomplishment, though. I mean, sometimes now in present day, we look back like, well, inevit- uh, America, are, this idea of America was going to always inevitable. But there are a lot of moments... That a lot of countries in the past that were democracies have fallen apart and we've been uh very resilient so the to really sit back take in what it means to be 200 years uh su- a successful democracy and that we just saw our checks and balances works properly there's yeah, I mean, something to be said about that if you
1: remember a lot of people a lot of european diplomats viewed america as the great experiment so the fact that it survived 200 years um i'm happy to i'm happy to hope then maybe we will be around to see the three hundredth. Yeah, we birthday. have an agree
0: agreement. When I'm eighty nine and you're eighty seven, right. we'll get together for another <laughs> podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> for the tricentennial, if that's what you're going to. If
1: podcasts it. are still in favor, people are still pop yeah. like they still listening to podcasts. Whatever. <laughs> um, yeah. The election in 1976. Um, the, so this is where um, Jimmy Carter kind of makes his political debut. The Republican primaries, interestingly enough, choose Ford over Reagan. So The these, fact that they
0: had a primary, though, like a right. sitting president yeah, had right. to defend himself right. against the Republican. Well, this, is a,
1: this is a president that was not popular, popularly appointed. Right. This and he's also the, given his... the only president to never been
0: nationally elected to an office in right. national election because he was a House representative. Um,
1: he was a minority
0: leader. Yeah, every other president in our history has been elected, or at least on the ticket,
1: Right. Uh, uh, So he kind of had to legitimize himself not only in front of his uh, Democratic appointments opponents, but also his uh, his allies in the Republican Party. But like Mr. Copeland said, the fact that they had a primary and and Reagan narrowly like misses an appointment shows us he gives us a little bit of foreshadowing of Reagan's ascendancy later on by the the later eight nineteen eighties.
0: And so the the Democratic primary is a little bit different. Carter emerges because he's an outsider, and both parties have an issue with the Washington establishment, the corruption that's going on in Washington because of the turmoil and the after effect of the Watergate scandal. So the establishment Democrats, the ones that have been there for a generation, Carter runs as that alternative and he's an attractive alternative. He's from the South. He's from Georgia. And we were just talking about how this unusual thing you just heard us reference uh, previously about the Southern strategy that uh, Nixon used to win reelection. The Republicans do not run as staunchly on that. And the combination of uh, the the desire for an alternative, an outsider, Carter being from the South, being a farmer, all those things... Playing together, we're theorizing are really the reason why Carter was able to win the general election, narrowly, narrowly. It was very close. The uh, popular vote was 50 to 48, and uh, it was a, you know, needing 270 to win, he achieved 287 electoral votes.
1: And it's interesting, like, if you want to see where the transition for for the Southerners to, to make it to the Republicans, you, you see the congressional numbers, and although the Congress remains in demo, under democratic control, they only gained a seat, a, net, a net additional seat by one. So we're going to begin to slowly see Congress become more red throughout the years and eventually it's going to work its way up to the presidency.
0: And, um, you know, the other interesting thing that emerges is a solid block of voting from the uh, the black vote. Ninety-seven percent of uh, African Americans vote for the Democratic ticket that year. And a large part, this is a culmination of the support for the Civil Rights Act the decade before. So Congress remains in Democratic control. We now have a Democratic president. And that brings us into Jimmy Carter's presidency.
1: So Jimmy Carter's uh, foreign policy can be, like, chalked up to humanitarianism or a humanitarian approach to foreign policy. A little bit different from Nixonian's uh, you know, position on a real politique or detente, um, he's going to take up more of the cause of human rights. Um, however, um, being a man with some limited knowledge of nuclear uh, atomic energy, I feel like this is what tremendously influenced him to do that. So he had some naval experience uh, when he was younger in the 50s. He was training to become an um, officer in the Navy, that was going to hopefully be on one of our first nuclear submarines. So he kind of want to continue Nixon's detente, but also kind of reshape America's reputation in the world community, Mm -hmm. especially over allegations of the CIA kind of having more heavy-handed um, you know uh, strategies on removing communist sympathetic leaders throughout the world. So he immediately is going to appoint the first uh, African American, Andrew Young, to serve as the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. And that right away is going to show a lot of countries throughout the world that we are a progressive nation. Uh, Carter and Young will champion together the cause of human rights around the world, especially by a by opposing the apartheid in uh, the black majority in South Africa and in Rhodesia, of course, Zimbabwe, by all white governments. So this is his like first debut in terms of uh, international humanitarian uh, platforming, and he's going to do it with the help of Andrew Young.
0: Yeah, in addition to that, there's some issues in Latin America that he tries to uh, combat in terms of human rights violations. You have the militaristic governments of Argentina and Chile. He decides to cut off U.S. aid to those countries in response to what they've done to their own people. So this is an effort that the United States had not been doing recently. We were taking more um, you know, military action was our approach around the world in terms of intervention. So now we're going to cut off aid to countries that we believe are um, misbehaving in a sense when it comes to human rights. And one of the things that that leads to in Central America is also the Panama Canal. So Carter administration what they're trying to do is correct some of the things we've talked about earlier this year and how the United States influenced and acquired control over the Panama Canal back in 1903.
1: If you remember Teddy Roosevelt's big stick policy, he's going to use U.S. naval forces to kind of pressure the Panamanians to give rights or or, or property rights uh, for us to construct this uh, canal. Now, uh, this treaty was overwhelmingly going to benefit the United States government at the exploitation of the Panamanians. So Carter moves to kind of uh, to correct this uh, by renegotiating negotiating a long-standing treaty that will later be ratified by the Senate in 1978.
0: Yeah, so that is something that is a difficult thing to get through, but eventually he's able to influence Congress enough. And remember, Democrat-controlled Senate helps that. But um, the the Panama Canal, the culmination of the treaty was that it is an agreement to gradually transfer the operation and control back to the Panamanians. And that's completed in the year 2000. I remember at the millennial when that was something that was happening. They showed the celebrations in Panama in 2000 um, when that was occurring.
1: So, again, like how we did with the Philippines, this is a gradual kind of readmittance of their autonomy. And, of course, there's going to be a lot of um, critics. I mean, some opponents are going to accuse Carter of of giving away the the canal in the 1980 election. And they're going to use that against him when uh, he runs against Reagan.
0: Yes. So Camp David Accords are something that... all of us need to be aware of because it is the greatest achievement that Carter has during his presidency. And it was a peace settlement between Egypt and Israel, right? The six-day war that occurred just a decade earlier was something that we're trying to ease the tensions. You know, a generation before, after World War II, we create the nation of Israel, and we are really staunch defenders of their um, sovereignty. And this is something that the Arab world is uh, contentious of. So in 1977, the original uh, the person who actually made the first step was the president Anwar Sadat and uh, he visits with Prime Minister Menachem Begin, I believe and uh, that step in the right direction in Jerusalem when he visits with him is when uh, prompts Carter to invite both of them to Camp David and he would be the intermediary so Camp David is a place uh, off campus, it's basically a retreat home for the presidency, and all all presidents have access to it. So he ends up negotiating the Camp David Accords there, which are the framework from a peace settlement between the countries in the future. But as a result, Egypt is the first Arab nation to recognize the nation of Israel. Just like we delayed our recognition of China, this is a very important. For the Middle East peace process,
1: as a result, Israel, or to kind of be say phase, Israel is also going to agree to withdraw troops from the Sinai area, which was land taken from Egypt in the Six Day War of 1967. Of course, this is generally going to be applauded by most of the world community, except, of course, the Palestinian Liberation Organization or PLO, um, and other Arab countries, particularly those who are uh, in OPEC, are going to kind of find this to be. Um, a complacent uh, betrayal of their Arab nationalism. The fact that Egypt was willing to kind of compromise with you know, the puppet government of the United States is something that's going to be received with quite some ire uh, within the PLO and other Arab nations. But generally speaking, in Europe and elsewhere, it's going to be applauded as one of Carter's uh, diplomat, greatest diplomatic achievements.
0: Yes, and so from his greatest achievement, we move now to what he's most known for in terms of his... In- international failures, which is the Iran hostage crisis. So in 1979, we have Islamic fundamentalists taking over in Iran, why? Because they're frustrated with the Shah that's been installed by Western governments, specifically the United States, okay? So the Shah had been in control, keeping the oil flowing to the rest of the West, and the autocratic rule plus Westernization of their culture was something that most of the Iranian population was not happy with, and it alienated much of them. So the leader of the fundamentalists was known as the Ayatollah Khomeini, and he starts to encourage this idea of of this anti-American sentiment um, and brings that up to a fever pitch. In 1953 was when, remember, we had installed uh, installed the Shah against their democratically elected leader. So this is something that they have held against the United States in quite some time. So November of 1979, the Iranian militant seized the United States Embassy. And of the 50 Americans that are taken as hostage, almost all of them work there uh, as the staff. And this is something that dragged out for the remainder of his presidency the last two years, and it really became a symbol of his failure.
1: Now, to our point of view, these are 50 Americans that are just innocently be, being de- ambassadors, right? And they're just trying to create cha- diplomatic channels to negotiate peace. But from the Iranian's point of view, or at least from these fundamentalists, these uh, American ambassadors were, you know, spies. They were people that were, you know, helping to exploit the country that that long had ties to the Shah as well as to the West. So, you know, they were using this hostage for some sort of Diplomatic leverage, and unfortunately for Carter, um, you know the Iranians or the Ayatollah Khomeini, uh, they did not give up these hostages. Um, and the more that it dragged on, it kind of showcased how Carter really wasn't as tough as a negotiator as once expected. Yeah, he was especially able,
0: especially coming from administration like Nixon. Oh, such a absolutely, yeah. So that's something that's significant. And there's one attempted uh, rescue mission, right? But unfortunately, they had to abort the mission when one, several of the helicopters actually broke down over the Iranian desert. So it was a mission that never was able to actually right. take place. And because of that, he, diplomatic um, channels were unable to cause a solution. And in some way, they say that the fundamentalists held on to the hostages until, until, the, next co- election. until the next election,
1: just to hold it over Carter. I was going to ask Carter. you that, because yeah. I, I knew that they did it right after when Reagan gets elected. Exactly. It and was, was definitely more of a middle to finger to, to Carter. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Um, throughout the Cold War, as we said before, he's going to continue Nixon and Ford's policy of detente with China and USSR. In 1979, the uh, United States will officially recognize uh, will end their official recognition of the, the, the government of Taiwan. If you remember, Chiang Kai shek's nationalist forces were there. That was our official recognition of the Chinese government. We ended that, and we're going to exchange more ambassadors with the People's Republic or mainland China. In 79 we're going to uh, promote more negotiations with arms. Uh, a disarmament uh, characterized in salt number two with the USSR. Each are going to promise even more uh, disarmament of nuclear uh, weapons, and we're going to be more transparent in the delivery system.
0: However, the interesting thing about that is they were successfully negotiated, but the Senate never ratifies those uh, agreements because of the growing tensions that uh revolve around Afghanistan. And
1: that happens in December of 79. Right. So, you know, they managed to kind of continue with the detente. But then when Soviet troops start to invade Afghanistan, um, interestingly, for the very similar reasons why we were, we're later going to invade uh, invade Afghanistan, um, is going to kind of heighten U.S.-Soviet ch- uh, attention. So that really kind of characterized Soviet's invasion of Afghanistan is the end of a decade of improving U.S.-Soviet relations. And we're kind of going back to those... Uh, pre, pre-Cold pre War tensions that we've experienced before 68 and 69.
0: Yeah. And, you know, the, the thing that was concerning was the U.S. feared, with oil being such an important commodity, with our economy just being, you know, in a few short recessions because of um, – You know OPEC nations and the control of oil, this invasion of Afghanistan could lead to the Soviet control of the oil-rich Persian Persian Gulf if they continued to move to the southwest. So um, we are willing to arm anyone who will resist this. And one of the individuals that we arm and his rebels happens to be a man by the name of Osama bin Laden, conveniently.
1: Now, we have to make this very clear. There's no, obviously, in hindsight, you know, it's 2020, there was no way of knowing that he would eventually be a thorn at the United States side. However, a partisan who is anti-communist is going to be a key ally especially in the cold war chess game arena that we've been talking about this whole yeah, time we,
0: we mentioned that throughout the policy of containment is that just because someone's anti-communist doesn't make them good but right. during the our policy of containment with the domino theory anyone who's anti-communist is
1: our friend in this time period so Carter's going to react more strongly than uh, not just only arming partisans like Osama bin Laden and his network, but he's going to place an embargo on grain exports and sale and, sa- and the sale of high technology to the USSR in the hope of economically crippling them or kind of forcing them to stop doing what they're doing. And of course, they're going to we're going to boycott the 1980 Olympics in Moscow as a sign of our displeasure and our dis- uh, disgust with uh, the Soviets' invasion in the Middle East. After campaigning for arms reduction, uh, Carter has to switch to an arms buildup. So something that was negotiated about a year ago is now going to go back to kind of uh, improving or helping the military industrial complex. And we're beginning to see rearmament uh, to kind of meet the, gr- the demand of the tensions between the United States and the Soviet Union.
0: So as far as domestic policy, the major um, issue that Carter's going to have to combat is the growing inflation in our country. It's the biggest issue at home. And what he tries to do is check inflation by two ways, encouraging the conserving of oil energy, um, you know, consumption. If we can reduce our overall consumption as a nation, it will make it easier for inflation to be under control and to try and revive the U.S. coal industry at the same time, um, asking Congress to pass him something. The compromises that were needed uh, to get something through were just not enough in either direction to accomplish these goals. So in 1979, 1980, inflation gets in completely out of control. And this is the last year and a half of um, Carter's presidency, where it reaches the unheard rate of rate of about 13%. So just imagine prices going up, the worth of the dollar reducing by 13% every single
1: year and like as mr copeland said when you have inflation the, the increased value of currency it's going to slow economic growth people are not going to have a lot, not, they're not going to be as confident to take out a loan or a mortgage or they're going to engage in some in, entrepreneurial business practice so it's going to affect not only consumers but businesses as well they cannot afford these high interest rates offered in banks or the high prices that are going to be adjusted because of the the situation.
0: And and the other thing is for retirees. Your whole life you're saving money. Now that money isn't worth as much. So that puts an entire amount of anxiety in our uh, domestic issues because inflation is really one of the worst things that an economy can have happen to themselves. So in an effort to combat that, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, this man Paul Volcker uh, imposes some policies in an effort to go after these uh, inflationary rates by increasing interest rates to as much as 20% in 1980. So if I'm a business looking to get a small loan they're trying to reduce the amount of money available in circulation so they're going to make it more expensive to access that money by making 20% the rate that you're gonna to have to pay whenever you're paying off these loans it hurts the auto and building industries tremendously they are lay- laying off more than uh, 10,000 workers each and it is something that um, permeates in a increase in our unemployment rate unfortunately
1: it's gonna push more of the middle class into higher tax brackets, and it's going to lead to what will later be known as the taxpayers' revolt, and it's going to have a significant impact on the legacy of Jimmy Carter. Government programs and inflation is going to push the federal deficit to nearly $60 billion in 1980. These are the economic uh, contextual factors that lead to the ascendancy of Ronald Reagan and his promises of cutting out this deficit spending, which we'll talk about later on.
0: For the first time since World War II, the Americans have to realize that Unfortunately, their standard of living is not improving. We have nearly 30 years of improving conditions since the depths of the Great Depression. And now for the first time, we're going in a position where um, in a five-year period, your prospects and your future is not looking as good as it was just uh, half a decade before.
1: So to recap, we have Carter that is that actually gained a very high uh, stance and popularity within the black community, and he was able to manage to secure the southern hold in 1976. He's going to leave the office uh, with a very, very low popular rating, primarily due to the Iranian hostage crisis, the worsening economic crisis um, and his kind of uh, his speech, the national Malay speech where he kind of starts to blame the problems on the U S for the moral and spiritual crisis, of the American people, it didn't resonate well with them. It kind of sounded very self-righteous mm-hmm. and kind of overly moralizing. And a lot of Americans started to blame the president, not themselves uh, for being weak and indecisive.
0: There's a national address where he's trying to address the nation to calm them down, also inspire them. And, it had the opposite effect. Right. It basically made them go, "Who does this guy think he right. is?" Guilt trip. You know, you're central. the one. You're the one that has been messing things up. Where's the leadership? Right. So that that is why they viewed him as a president that was known as a, a weak president, and um, in terms of his indec- indecision and lack of leadership, was part of what brought him down. So in 1980s, approval rating drops all the way down to 23, percent and uh, the unpopular president is vulnerable to not just an attack from the right but also from the left within his own party.
1: Okay, so we're going to switch gears now and talk about America's society in transition. This is also not like a time period of great scandal and uh, economic turmoil, but it's also uh, a shift in the demographics. And we're shifting this country from less of being, I guess, a melting pot and more to be actually a pluralistic society or a salad bowl. Um, By nearly half of all Americans, they're going to live in the fastest growing sections of the city, the South and West. Citizens are also getting older. Uh, 65 and older, so that's going to have a significant impact on politics, and also, as I said before, demographics are changing. By 1990, minority groups will make up 25% of the population. This will have a a significant impact on uh, politics with the Democratic Party as well as the Republican Party.
0: Yeah, the interesting thing here is the Census Bureau predicts that by 2050, half of our population here in America would be Hispanic, black, or Asian American, meaning that whites would be a minority of the population for the first time in our history. And I believe that the generation that's starting school now in first grade right. would be the last generation, when they graduate high school, will probably be uh, the last point in which everyone in school is a white majority.
1: So again, this is going to force um, you know Americans to kind of redefine what it means to assimilate into this country. And as we said before, you know we had this tendency to have a melting pot theory that all cultures that come here, they must um, give up or shed away their ethnic identities in order to be part of the American culture.
0: And when we spoke about this earlier this year on You're the right. podcast about uh, cultural uh, appropriation right. and other things, is that... You know, I remember something you said, salad bowl, another version I've heard is a stew. Is that like every ingredient provides a significant flavor, adds to the total whole, but doesn't lose its own um, identity. And that, that's the difference between salad slash stew and melting pot means everybody becomes a one thing.
1: So what accounts for this demographic change? Well, it's really because of the liberalization of immigration laws uh, by the 1960s. Before the 1960s, most of the immigrant groups coming in came from Europe or Canada. If you noted earlier in the 1920s, we specifically set quotas based on ethnic uh, identity. So racial barriers were put in place, and by 60s, on the wave of you know Kennedy's New Frontier program in the wave of, you know, liberalism of the 1960s in general, we're going to kind of get rid of those racial barriers. And a lot of other people are coming from other parts of the world.
0: Yeah, the the growth in immigration really starts in Latin America, where 47% of all immigrants in the 1980s are coming from uh, Latin America. And then nearly a quarter of all immigrants, or a little bit more than that, are coming from Asia. So we go from vast majority of all immigrants restricted to just being Europe and Canada, meaning white. And now, fewer than 13% of immigrants are coming from Europe in the 1980s, and that's a dramatic shift.
1: Don't get fooled by the numbers. Um, Although there are less than 13% of immigrants coming from Europe, um, there are other reasons for why um, people in Europe are not coming. There are a lot more external factors. And the fact that we're also having the policies that are more open to a variety of different types of people is going to account for the higher numbers in Latin America and Asia. So with immigration also comes undocumented immigrants. By mid-1970s, approximately 12 million undocumented undocumented immigrants will be in the United States and this will prompt Congress to pass the immigration and reform Act of 1986 that we will talk about later in period nine notes but generally speaking it's going to be an act that will penalize employers for hiring immigrants who have entered the country illegally or have overstayed their visas but at the same time will grant amnesty for illegal immigrants by 1982 for those of you who don't know what the word amnesty means it means forgiveness basically taking a a, a magic leaf legal wand, so to speak, and giving them the opportunity to become legal in this country.
0: Yeah. And expanding upon that, we also have a demands for minority rights, specifically within the Hispanic American community. And sometimes we think civil rights and we associate that with the plight of African Americans in our country. But you have to view all minorities and people of color uh, similarly in their efforts to try and move up the social ladder. So Hispanic Americans before World War II, Hispanic Americans were largely in southwestern states, Okay, we have new arrivals coming from Central America, Cuba, and Puerto Rico. And as far as Puerto Rico, we have just as many Puerto Ricans here in uh, the Bronx, New York, and in New York City. (laughs) And and sometimes Puerto Rico at certain points because of it being our uh, territory. So um, there are Mexicans that are deported in the 1930s. Well, they're gradually coming back in the 50s and 60s. 60s, taking some of these low-paying agricultural jobs. And what that leads to is a workers' rights movement that emerges by this man, Cesar Chavez.
1: And think of them like how we described the labor movement in the 1890s for white working class Americans, right? It's the same thing. These people that are getting agricultural jobs, they're on the low end of the social ladder, the totem pole, and they're going to be ripe for exploitation. A lot of these guys that are going to get hired, they're not going to get standard minimum wage, not going to be able to kind of afford this type of living. And because these are American citizens at this point, they're kind coming by the 50s and they're gaining, you know, uh, legitimacy, it's, it's, it's only fair for, for Cesar Chavez and his uh, the foundation of a collective called the United Farm Workers to start to negotiate or push for a collective bargaining within these migrant workers. So think of them like the Samuel Gompers for, for the Hispanic American tradition and something that we really should celebrate because, again, we're beginning to have Hispanic Americans start to utilize the democratic channels in the society to gain the rights that they deserve.
0: Yeah, and it became a moral and ethical movement. It was not just viewed as some type of collective. Some of the disparaging comments about the workers' rights movement is sometimes associated with collectivism. Right. And- and Marxism, but this was an appeal to the American people about what they deserve. And it was something that was widely supported by most Americans at the moment. So uh, activists similarly won federal mandates for bilingual education throughout our country. So in areas where students were, uh, their primary language was uh, Spanish, they were requiring schools to teach Hispanic children both English and Spanish. And this was incredibly important in areas of South Florida and uh, along the border of Mexico with Texas and Arizona. So Hispanic politicians are elected into offices in the 1980s in Miami, San Antonio, and other large cities in these areas. And um, in the 2000 census, the Hispanic population in the United States is now the country's largest minority group. So um, they have... Uh, increased the percentage of the population compared to African Americans prior to that, and
1: you could see their power in their numbers, especially as Hispanic politicians gained seats in these key areas, and they continue to gain these seats throughout our nation even today. Um, another group of people that are pushing for rights is the American Indians. Um, at this point, they're going to still have that age-old tension between assimilation until you know the the general uh, white Anglo-Protestant culture that we have here, or maintaining their cultural identity. So this is go this this tension is going to re- reach a few fever pitch in the 60s, and a lot of American tribes are going to kind of get together and have what we call the American Indian Movement. It's going to be founded in 1968 to address this long-standing tension. Remember, things like the Dawes Act, way back in the early, uh, later 19th century, they're going to, it's going to be legislation that will be intended to dissolve the large standing tribes that were found in the Great Plains region. So at this point in the 60s, a lot of the tribes are really small. They're scattered. They're fractured. And we learned that a lot of them have a lot of different linguistic and ethnic uh, diversity within them. So this Indian movement was an attempt to kind of unite them under the common threat of their culture being stamped out. And some of them are going to kind of, you know, uh, emulate what Martin Luther King did for the black people, what Cesar Chavez did for the Hispanics but others are also going to take more uh, radical approaches, one in which in 1969, some of members of the AIM movement will take over Alcatraz Island and San Francisco Bay um, out of protest. Um, members are also going to occupy Wounded Knee, South uh, Dakota. If you remember, in 1890, December 1890, uh, the massacre of Wounded Knee is a big point for the dakota sioux uh when the the, the u.s cavalry wiped out uh, about a hundred or so of them in that given area so the some of the people in the american indian movement start to take over these key aspects in america but generally speaking other activists are going to utilize the court system to gain property uh rights and compensation for treaty violations that the united states uh, will later admit that they have done throughout the past and this will kind of um you know Typify to uh, Congress passing the Indian Self Determination Act. This will provide reservations, uh, giving them more autonomy in education, law enforcement, and commerce. Now, although it sounds good on paper, this is also going to lead to the proliferation of cas- the casino industry during this time. And although people that own these casinos are going to be american indians the industry itself is naturally exploitive and it's going to be something that's going to be sustainable only by white tourism so again it's not something that uh, they can have a trade in which they could become completely independent of it will be sustained again by white tourism if you see if you noticed fox woods if you remember, if you know anything like uh, uh, i don't think atlantic city but what's the other one i'm looking at Mohegan Sun. Um, these are these are things that we should kind of be stone more in upstate New York. Th- these mm-hmm. these things are going to you know we should look at with more critical eye
0: so the the 2010 census is reporting that there are 3 million people that identify themselves as american indian and over 2 million identify themselves of having mixed linked uh, uh, of, from these type of backgrounds. So uh, it's interesting to see that sometimes we dismiss this as a thing of the past, but it's still really present uh, in a small minority of the people here in our country today. So Asian-American experience is unique in our country in the fact that they are the original group to be excluded with the Chinese Exclusion Act.
1: 1882.
0: Um, you know, so the concerning thing in the 1980s is that the Asian-Americans are actually the fastest growing ethnic minority in America. And... There are racial stereotypes throughout all races. Many of them can be negative, many of them, but they also could be positive. And in a sense, one of the things that is used disparagingly about other minorities is that sometimes Asian Americans are held up as the myth of the model minority, that if they come here and are so successful, and their students and their children are able to get great grades and move up through the ranks and go to all these wonderful institutions of higher learning in our country, why can't you do it? Why can't you pull yourself up from your bootstraps? So it's this interesting myth of this model minority that many times Asian Americans are held up as very uh, accomplished in their ability to assimilate to American culture in a sense of being um, able to, in one generation, Really advance
1: themselves. It's important to remember that Asian as a term is a very general term that encompasses many different types of people coming from various nationalities. For example, perhaps Chinese Americans are pretty successful um, in wholesale or generally speaking, but a lot of people coming from Southeast Asia are not. So it's interesting how we even utilize the term Asian to kind of put everyone under big general categories. There are some you know, Asian uh you know ethnicities or um, asian americans that are not doing well that are not very successful that do not have not embody that stereotype that we typically put on all of them so that's very important to know what are we talking what do we mean by when we say asian
0: yeah and there are a lot of other factors that play into their perceived success or right. lack there right. depending on the different movements so um but it's just something to understand that it's been used in in the, in the past 20 30 years as a talking point mm-hmm. so um That brings us to the gay liberation movement. So in 1969, there's a police raid at a um, bar in New York City known as Stonewall. And it's an establishment very popular in the gay community. And um, we have to remember, in the mid-1970s, homosexuality is actually classified as a mental illness. And that changes in part because of what happens here. So the police are involved in a sense that they are basically doing a sting on technically illegal activity you know being publicly out as a gay person was illegal and so what happens is they raid they raid the bar they start to arrest any cross-dressing men and there starts to be a little bit of resistance to it so a spontaneous outburst outside when they're bringing the people out um, causes a little bit of disruption it becomes known as the Stonewall riots so the thing you have to realize is, Many of these people, their own families did not know they were um, gay. And so they were fearful of their names being in the paper, their pictures being in the paper, their careers being ruined. And this is something that the police consciously um, knew was part of the motivation of staying closeted and in this um, environment. So they were using that against them in a sense.
1: So Stonewall riots really are is it typifies the brutal oppression that homosexual communities often faced by police officers. So this is the rallying uh, cry or the rallying event behind the gay liberation movement. Not only by not only started by homosexuals but homosexual sympathizers as well. People who are also kind of looking at the police during this time as you know agents of oppression for a variety of other groups of people. Um, with this type of pressure, civil service will eventually drop its ban on employment of homo. And we will continue with this gay liberation movement up until the 90s, where Clinton hopes to push for a complete end of discrimination against homosexuals in the military. But in a Republican-dominated Congress, he will settle on a don't ask, don't tell policy, a policy in which uh, did not exclusively ask or specifically ask people joining the military to talk or disclose their sexuality. But at the same exact time, they were not able to celebrate or even express those things uh, at a fear of uh, getting discharged um, from, from um, any any branch of the military. So so all of those efforts to kind of push for rights for the homosexual community will culminate in the 2015 Supreme Court decision that legalizes gay marriage. And we just recently saw that a few years ago.
0: Yeah, Throughout the country, because there were some states that had taken that initiative on their own, but now we have a policy that is nationwide.
1: So we're going to move and change gears on the environmental movement, which um, actually started under Nixon's um, tenure in office. But it's going to be induced by a series of environmental catastrophes from the 60s all the way throughout the 80s. So in 1969, we have Santa Barbara oil spill uh, in California, which will shock the nation um, and will spend lots of money in terms of cleaning it up. Um, and also not to mention the uh, the death of several animals in that area.
0: Yeah, the Exxon Valdez oil tanker accidents in Alaska, I remember when we were very young, right. seeing many images of seagulls and okay. seals and all these animals being stuck in the, the oil. It was powerful images that environmentalists were able to point to as reasons why um, we need to reform what's going on. And the last two images are actually not oil-related, but nuclear power plants that have meltdowns, one in Pennsylvania, and Chernobyl, famously in 1986, in the Soviet Union. So because of the accident three-mile power plant in Pennsylvania, it, you see the American people and the American public, the support for nuclear power starts to wane as we see the danger of living in the proximity to it. So we start to have legislation that combats against the fear of what happens when things go wrong. So 1970 is when it starts, as you mentioned, under Nixon's administration, where we passed two important factor, uh, things. We have the Clean Air Act. And you have the fact that they formed the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA. And I remember in class, some people have brought up the fact that, oh, well, wasn't the environment always political? Well, that's just not been the case, because its simple fact is that Lady Bird Johnson was a a big proponent of it. And then Nixon uh, culminates in creating the EPA under his watch, because if there's one thing we all have in common, it's the environment itself. 1972, the Clean Water Act is in, encouraged as well, and then eventually the Endangered Species Act in 1973. In
1: 1980, they're going to go ahead to have a Superfund created to clean toxic waste at Love Canal, Niagara Falls, New York. Of course, all these regulations and the distribution of toxic substances... Uh, public drinking water systems and protected natural environments will suffer the ire of business interests who are going to think in their position that they can do whatever they want in those areas, and they're going to start to push and lobby against some of these protection legislations by the late half of the 1980s. So this is right now in the 70s, Mr. Copeland talked about, there's going to be a general consensus on protecting uh, these resources um, from uh, consumption of private interests, and And by 1980s or late 1980s, we're going to see a lobbying effort to kind of roll back some of these initiatives. So
0: eventually we culminate the 1970s where you can see what's about to happen is kind of a conservative shift in the ideology in America. So with all the liberal changes of the previous decade and a half, the sluggish economy at the conclusion of Carter's administration, many Americans were frustrated with the fact that um, they didn't feel like the system was working for them. They are bitter, and this really is the preclude to the conservative backlash in the 1980s election, which sees the emergence of Ronald Reagan as a two-term
1: president. And with that, that concludes our part two of 8-4.